You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I'll be reading Hebrews 4. Verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet, he is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, we do have Redemption Hill kids for ages 2 to 4, ages 2 to 4, so you may be dismissed right now. And just so you know, um, we do have a family meeting coming up, and at that family meeting, I'll, I'll let you know about some additional classes we're going to offer. We, we have our 5 to 9 class, but we've got some more classes that we'll be offering uh, to serve you. For kids that are in the service, uh, something I am accustomed to saying, you're a blessing and not a burden. Repeat that. You are a blessing, not a burden. So if you need uh, totes, they're in the hallway for kids that are in the service. Also, we have kids' sermon notes. So if you fill, those, fill out those kids' sermon notes, uh, I open up this box. There's some goodies. Got to get permission from your parents. Bring those sermon, sermon notes up to me after the service. I'll take a look at them, and then perhaps I'll let you dive into to the magic box. So before I, before I begin here, just a little bit of um, a family matter, I guess, if you want to call it that. For, so if you're a guest, you're just kind of listening in this morning. Here's uh, my pastoral, just personal confession. I'm exhausted <laughs> for circumstances that I couldn't control. I'm exhausted. So what does this mean for you? Um, my wife tells me that when I'm tired and when I preach, I over-exaggerate everything. So... It is likely that my arm expressions will be more than usual, so I will fly away. Uh, the, the, I told you a couple weeks ago, I, I use sprinkle fingers. Uh, so who knows what's going to become of this sermon. As they say in golf, you just kind of grip it and rip it, and I just pray that the Holy Spirit uses the message this morning. Many of you know we've been going slowly through the book of Hebrews, and I hope and pray it has been profitable for you. At some point, we'll shift gears and interrupt Hebrews for a short sermon series, but we'll, we'll eventually get through the entire, entire book, I promise. And I'm going to level with you for a moment. Um, we're going slower than I expected. You know, I kind of map things out, um, and then you kind of walk through it. And in this particular case, I've just decided to slow down. 
And as a pastor, you kind of make those, you try to discern and you pray. And it's like, okay, is this a good topic for us to just to focus on for several weeks? We did that um, when we talked about rest in Hebrews 4. We had three weeks on biblical rest and what that means. And so with, that, with this said, we're going to be wrestling just with three verses this morning. And frankly, I could split these three verses up and make them each its own sermon because of what we read in them. Last week, I, I preached on what some would say is the most memorable verse in the book of Hebrews. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Many of you know that verse. And this week might be one of the most um, meaningful passages in Hebrews for some people. So, in the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word, what we're going to see today is God comforts the lowly heart. Like verse 16 is so powerful. God comforts the lowly heart. God heals deep wounds. God can mend pain that no pill or medication can do. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So I'm going to pray. I need God's help desperately. And then we'll get into today's message. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We come underneath it this morning, knowing that it's authoritative and instructive for us. Lord, I just want to be faithful to what you've already spoken. And I pray for those who are in front of me, in the power of the Holy Spirit, would you meet them, speak to their mind and to their heart. May we all walk away with a sense of, oh, how good you are to us. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we pray in the only name that we can pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's that time of year, Iowa State Fair. I was there on Thursday. I had a great time. It's also that time of year, like every three, four years, where politicians descend upon the Iowa State Fair. I have to admit that Iowans have unique access to politicians. Like, you know, I was away from Iowa for for 16 years, 13 in the Twin Cities, three in in Raleigh-Durham, and we couldn't find a politician with a searchlight, right? You just can't find them. They're not coming to those states. And so here, here in Iowa, we get the photo ops that are constantly taking, taking place. Uh, politicians are, are, are shaking hands and, and kissing babies. And if you're lucky enough and you're at the right place at the right time, you're the person that's getting the handshake or your baby's getting kissed by the politician. And then th- this is a side note. Most people outside the state of Iowa just look at Iowa with disdain. <laughs> They're like, how come you guys get all the attention, Right. The question I want to ask in light of many Iowans having access to people in power is this. Do Christians have a similar access to God through Jesus Christ? Should Christians approach God with the same mentality and attitude as if I ran into my uh, favorite politician at the Iowa State Fair? Like when we went Thursday... Talking with you know Roy Swinger, he's like, oh, I saw you know this particular politician right when I walked in. What about God? What do we think about the access we have to Him? Here's another example of having access to someone in authority. Let me take you back to the 16th century. Location: London, England. The King of England is Henry VIII. Would Sean Powers, a peasant and a parole, 
have access to the king who is not only an earthly king, but was made supreme head of the church by an act of parliament in 1534. At that time, England was very Catholic, and Henry had power over not only his country, but the church. He had more power than the Pope. If you think I would have access to the king, you'd be extremely misguided. <laughs> but what if I was told I could have access to the king, in, king of England and the head of the church? You better believe I would approach the king with a different mentality than I would perhaps a politician at the Iowa State Fair. The case I'm going to make this morning from Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, is that we have access to a king who is better than any earthly king, or politician, or president, or prime minister, or sheik. And when you receive access to the king, you find a king who does not disdain you or wants to use you for a photo op, but a king who loves you. Who extends mercy and grace. He is a king that not only fights for you, he not only has died for you, but he continues to walk with you in this life that is full of trials and temptations. From a bird's eye view, this passage just shows us the greatness of God, the goodness of God. And in his greatness, grandeur, and goodness, he, he bids you, Christian. He bids you, Christian. What did he say? Ryan said it earlier. Come. Come. Come to him. I'm going to work backwards through this passage, which for some might be unorthodox, but I'm going to work backwards with a purpose. I'm going to begin in verse 16. I'm beginning in verse 16 because I want you to see the unfettered access that a Christian has to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll end by telling you why and how we have unfettered access to God. I want you to look at I want you to look at your heart with the end goal of worshiping Christ. So we're going to look at our heart first, and the end goal is to direct our heart and our gaze toward Jesus. Take a look at verse 16 with me. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find Grace to help in time of need. Allow the weight of this verse to land on you. What sin have you been trying to kick? What have you been wrestling with? Have you been feeling distant from God recently? What issue have you been wrestling with God, right? Christian, 
Is there something in your life that is causing you to not approach God? I've learned that the reason Christians do not approach God is not because of God. It is because of the individual, because of myself. We see sometimes that Christians might lack the courage and confidence to approach God. Or, or condemnation, right? Kind of presses down on them. It's like, how could I even possibly approach God? On the one hand, all Christians need to approach God in humility, right? That is certainly true. Like, you do not approach God like a politician at the state fair with your pork chop in your hand and the barbecue sauce all over your face. We should not approach God flippantly. Will God extend mercy to the jester in his court? Absolutely, 100%. Of course. But Christians need to have a sense that we are to not approach God flippantly. I say this often to, um, to kids that I teach. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to play. There's a time to have fun. There's a time where we rest. There's a t- but there's a time also where we, where we come to God seriously and also with humility. We don't pray flippantly. I don't want to preach flippantly. You don't want me preaching flippantly. Humility. You approach God with humility. You also do not approach God like a fearful peasant before King Henry VIII. You do not need to be afraid that King Henry is going to smite you just like he did you know, one of his queens, Anne Boleyn, right? In the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians approach the throne of grace with this admixture of humility and courage. I truly believe that it is only the Holy Spirit that trains a Christian to hold both of these attributes together as we approach God. We approach God humbly because he is the sovereign creator of the universe and he is sovereign over your life. We, we saw last week, what, what did we, how did we end last week's sermon? We are naked and exposed. We are already naked and exposed before God, right? So, in hu- so humility is the key. And you also approach God with confidence because your confidence to approach God is rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you have faith in Christ, then you are united to Christ. Your confidence to approach God is directly to the man who hung from the tree and then walked away from the tomb. The latter part of verse 16, I think, is stunning. When you approach God through faith in Jesus Christ, there is mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Specifically, there is ongoing mercy and grace to help you when you're vulnerable, when you are weary, when you are needy, when life is going sideways, when the waters rise and you're just, you're just trying to stay afloat, trying to keep that chin above the water. You've all been there. I've been there. God is there to help you. God is there to help you. 
I was thinking about what this means for everyday life. Like at the end of the day, it's like, okay, this, this is, these are great truths, right? But what does that mean for my everyday life? I'll tell you a very practical example that's about 36 hours old. <laughs> On Friday night <clears throat> and Saturday, I used verse 16 of Hebrews 4 to impact my life. My family can testify. They can witness. Grumpy dad. Grumpy dad. Because of a string of events, I was getting really, really frustrated. The internal frustration in my heart began to affect how I treated the people around me. And then I stepped away for a moment. I was like, just stepped away. And I reflected on Hebrews 4, verse 16. At that moment, I needed help. I needed help. Yes, I was the cause of my own sin and not my circumstances. But I needed help desperately. So, I reminded myself of the access I have to the grace and mercy of God. You know, in an instant, my mind and heart began to change. I reminded myself that God has been immensely merciful to Sean Powers. I have been forgiven. God has been immensely gracious to Sean Powers. I have the ability to grow in godliness, even in those moments of frustration. And the same is for you. Consider your life for a moment, right? When's the last time you knew you personally needed help? Whether it's because of your own sin or circumstances, whatever. When was the last time you truly needed help? Now answer this question for me. Will there be a time in the future when you will need help? We all know the answer is yes. When that happens, remind yourself of Hebrews 4, verse 16. Remind yourself of that. Don't let it pass. Here's how I would sum up verse 16 in light of the examples I've already used. The Lord Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, but his throne is far greater than any earthly king. However, access to your king is better than going to the state fair. It is better than walking through the gates and taking a selfie with the governor or your favorite presidential candidate. You have access to Christ. And he is here to help you. Now let's, again, working our way backwards, let's look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I'll end by saying a few things about Jesus being our great high priest. Before that, there are two questions I want to answer. First, what does it mean for Jesus to sympathize with our weakness? Second, 
What does it mean for Jesus to be tempted just as we've been tempted? Those are two really, really important questions. How is it, first, how is it possible for Jesus to sympathize with our weakness? The answer at first is theological, which has huge practical implications. Jesus can sympathize with our weakness because the Son of God took on flesh. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and what dwelt among us. He took on flesh. I mean, Ryan sang a Christmas song in, in what, August, which is fantastic. I'm a big fan of Christmas music all year round. I don't care what the haters say. Christ is born. He took on flesh. Here's another great text that explains how Jesus is able to sympathize with us. It's from Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, can you see the lengths? All the actions that God has done for you, Christian, so that you could have access to Him. I mean, we could go back to Genesis 1 and read until the New Testament and see that God has always desired to have a meaningful and intimate relationship with His people. God is constantly breaking in and extending compassion. But the pinnacle of God's relationship with his people is found in the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus humbled himself, emptied himself, was born like a man, and died on a cross. The Son of God took on flesh not only to redeem humanity, but to help humanity. If you are a Christian, Christ has redeemed your life, all of it, through a bloody cross. And you and I know we await a final redemption. We continue to fight against the flesh and to live by the Spirit, and Christ has compassion as we strive in our weakness. You weak this morning, Christian? As you strive... Christ has compassion. God is not naive to your struggles, but he sees past them and he sees right to your heart. He bids you, just like I already said, he bids you, come. Now, I want, I want you to see what the text says here in verse 15. We read that Jesus sympathizes with, with us. I've already let the cat out of the bag. Biblical sympathy is about extending compassion. It's throwing your arms around your friend as they're sobbing in tears and, you, and, you're, and, the, and you're doing the act of listening and sitting with them as they're crying. You extend compassion. It is to weep with those who weep. Now, I'm going to, I do this from time to time. I, I stick my hand into a uh, beehive. I'm going to do that right here. I admit it. The emphasis here is not empathy. 
which is the direction many people go down these days. It's not empathy. No, I'm not. Darts, you know, maybe coming at me. And I get it. According to the Oxford Dictionary, empathy is the entrance in and to share the feelings of another person. There's a massive difference between knowing what a person feels, like just knowing that a person's crying, there's feelings related to those tears, knowing that, and entering into those feelings. Like for the first 25 years of my life, I'll admit it, I was an emotional mess, hot mess. My feelings were all over the place, and oftentimes my feelings were a result, a result of my own sin. Long story short, our feelings can be deceitful. I'm not saying you should not feel or have emotions. Quite the opposite. The goal is to rightly order our emotions and feelings with truth. And I'm not saying that God does not know what we're feeling. He is sovereign over all things. He knows all things. But I want to argue that sympathy and compassion is a virtue worth upholding because it does not stop at trying to understand a person's feelings, but sympathy moves us to action. Huge difference. We read all over the Old Testament that God had compassion for his people. And we constantly see in the Old Testament and new compassion in action. Compassion is connected, if you don't know, with mercy in the Old Testament, which adds this additional dimension. So I have no problem saying that God has sympathy, compassion, and mercy for you when you're weak. And that's a yes and amen. I know we're all Midwesterns, but, you know, if we're maybe in a different congregation, everyone would have been like, amen. Praise God. When I am in need of help, are all these attributes at work in my life as I turn to God for help? Yeah. A couple nights ago, was, was God's mercy and compassion being extended toward me? Yep. You better believe it. And the same goes for you. I needed God to comfort my soul. If you go back to the story I shared. I mentioned that I went to the state fair on Thursday. Um, the evening culminated with watching a concert. I'm generally not a concert goer. Uh, they're loud. And there's a lot of people, and I'm an extrovert. But I went, and it was good. It was, a good. it was a Christian concert. The band was for King and Country. It was the main attraction. I didn't know much about their music, but it was a good show. In light of where my head and heart had been all week, one song struck me more than others. Here's some of the lyrics. I put them up behind me. I think it's their most popular song. God only knows what you've been through. God only knows what they say about you. God only knows how it's killing you but there's a kind of love that God only knows. And then it gets repeated. God only knows what you've been through. God only knows what they say about you, but God only knows the real you. There's a kind of love that God only knows. That made an impression on me, right? You can kind of see how that connects with what we're seeing in Hebrews 4. And from these lyrics, generally speaking, I could say yes and amen. God knew you when you were being knitted together in your mother's womb. That's the type of intimacy we're talking about. But I would also add that in love, God acts. In his compassion and mercy, God acts. 
God knows you and acts on your behalf. More on that in a moment. What makes God unique from, say, your spouse, children, your best friend? He knows you. He knows how to meet you in your greatest needs. Are you feeling weak this morning? God knows he is here. Like, don't waste the moment. Right now, you're feeling weak. He's here. Here's how Christ sympathizes with our weakness. Because Christ took on flesh, he understands the nature of temptation. We bumped into this when we went through Hebrews 2, chapter 2. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The same is true here in verse 15 of chapter 4. Jesus is the Son of God, but how has he been tempted? On the one hand, some contend that God is sovereign, so of course he knows. On the other hand, because God is so other than, how could he possibly understand what, I've been, what I'm being tempted with? Not only did God create and sustain the universe, but let's face it, Sean Powers is a nobody. Right? Why would he take an interest in me? just to reflect on what we read in Psalm 8. Why would he take an interest in, in me, a man, a mere mortal? I want to take a moment to remind you of what I, what I said over nine weeks ago. Jesus Christ was profoundly tempted while he walked on this earth. Profoundly tempted. Let's start at the beginning of Christ's ministry to see how Jesus was tempted. We read in Matthew 4 that Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, right? 40 days. No, not eating, no drinking, because Christ is fully human and fully divine. I'm not going out on a limb to suggest he was suffering in his body. He hungered for food, right? I, some of us can't go four hours without hungering for food. And Jesus went 40 days. And after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was tempted by the devil, in three different ways, Jesus was tempted. First, lust of the flesh. Jesus was hungry. And the devil says, hey, turn these stones into bread and you can have some food. Right? Jesus was tempted. And he said no. The second temptation that Jesus faced is pride. The devil takes Jesus to the temple and dares him to jump off to see if the angels will catch him. So he's at the top of the temple. Jump off. Guess what? Angels will catch you, Jesus. Jesus does not take the bait. The third area of temptation is what I call the easy way to authority. Jesus knows he is king, but Jesus knows that a more significant suffering awaits him, and the devil gave him a workaround. Jesus could rule all the kingdoms of the world and avoid the cross if he were to simply bow down and worship the devil. Jesus understands our temptations because he has been tempted. Jesus knows suffering and temptation because of betrayal. Judas, a man who walked and talked with Jesus, betrayed him for, for 30 pieces of silver. That's all it took. If I were betrayed, I would be tempted to figure out a path of retribution. Right? That's the temptation. I'm going to get him back. 
Jesus understands humiliation. Let me ask you this. Is there a greater humiliation than to stand before the people in your community knowing that you've done nothing wrong? And Pontius Pilate offers a way for Jesus to be set free. Either A, this very sinful man, Barabbas, can be set free, or B, will set Jesus free. You've got to pick one, and what does the community, who does the community choose? They choose Barabbas. That's very humiliating. Here's the temptation for Jesus, I think. Why not walk away? Right? Why not walk away? Matthew 27 tells us that Jesus was stripped of all of his clothes and was openly mocked. Then, with dripping sarcasm, Jesus heard, Hail the King of the Jews! It is, in my opinion, and I think the evidence is clear, that we live in a time where Christ, his teachings, and his followers are being openly mocked. I'm not suggesting that Christians are victims of the obvious mocking that has taken place in this culture. But the mocking is taking place. And if you've ever been mocked for your faith, guess what? Jesus understands. He understands your temptation to imitate the evil that is directed toward you. Every ounce of human dignity was taken from Christ. So in the midst of so much suffering came a myriad of temptations. So yes, our Savior and Lord understands your weakness. He understands your weakness when you're tempted the most. He understands your weakness in the midst of trials. And as we already said, he extends grace and mercy in those moments. You are before his throne, son and daughter, and you are not alone. Because Christ has been tempted as we've been tempted, he can rightly extend compassion to all of his sons and daughters. Here's the final verse of our passage. Verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Think his ascension. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. I've already hinted at it, but verse 14 is why and how we have access to Christ. We have access to God through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the great high priest. The only way we can understand the depth of Jesus being the great high priest is actually to understand the role of a high priest in the Old Testament. Like we, we bump into this as, as you know, 21st century American Christians, right? And we're like, what does that even mean, right? High priest. Let me tell you, the Old Covenant the Old Testament high priests offered gifts and sacrifices for the sins of God to God for the sins of God's people on their behalf, right? He was the mediator. He was the mediator between God and the people. God would come in judgment because of the sins of the people, and the high priest would stand in their place offering sacrifices that satisfied God's justice and demonstrated his mercy by punishing an innocent animal in the place of a human being. So every, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, like the most sacred room. It is the most sacred place in the temple where he offered a sacrifice for the people. So let's pause for a moment. I know it's foreign to us to think about sacrificing an animal for any reason. I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine? 
the blowback we would receive if we started sacrificing animals here at church. Like, like PETA would be on the phone. So it's hard for us to kind of grasp that. In some places of the country and world, you get arrested. But for thousands of years, and amongst many cultures and religions, animal sacrifice was a regular practice. A high priest did it. It was normal. It was completely, 100% normal. So if you were in the crowd in the first century and you heard this sermon being preached and you heard that Jesus was the high priest, alarm bells were going off. To be the great high priest is to have all the authority and power to mediate on behalf of God's people. Hebrews chapter 5 is going to build this theme out. But here are a few takeaways. Here's why you have access to God to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Jesus is not only the high priest to mediate the ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, but he is also the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate sacrifice. He is the great high priest, and he is the greatest sacrifice. Last Saturday, after our What We Confess With Coffee you know, class, I struck up a, a conversation with a young guy. He was Catholic. He was reading a theological book. and Like, hey, great book. And we chatted up for a while, for about an hour and a half, right? And he had asked me a very pointed question. Smart kid, um, 25, 26, something like that. He's like, um, why'd you walk away from the Catholic Church? Right? Fair question, right? It's devout Catholic. And I, I told him I left the Catholic Church for multiple reasons, but one of them is their doctrine of the Eucharist. And if you grew up Catholic, you, you know what I'm talking about here. The Eucharist is what we call communion, which we celebrate every Sunday. And I was taught growing up that a Catholic who participates in the Eucharist is re-sacrificing Christ because Catholics believe that the bread and the juice turn into the actual and literal body and blood of Christ. So we chatted for a while. We chatted about that for a few minutes, but I constantly pointed him back to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4 and 5, where we see Jesus as the final and ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. There's no need to re-sacrifice. He is the great high priest. He's the ultimate sacrifice. So Christian, because Christ is the great high priest and ultimate sacrifice, it's good news. You're forgiven. You have unobstructed access to his mercy and grace. If I'm right, if you believe I'm faithfully conveying God's word to you this morning, here's the application. Here's the straightforward application. What do you need help with? What areas of your life need a touch of God's grace and mercy? Like, do some heart work, do some inventory. You, Christian, can have the confidence to enter his throne room and ask. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.